Okay, good evening and welcome. Before we begin proceedings, I'd like to acknowledge and pay respect to the traditional owners of the land on which we meet tonight, the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. It is upon their ancestral lands that the University of Sydney is built. As we share our knowledge, teaching, learning and research practices within this university, may we also pay respect to the knowledge embedded forever within the Aboriginal custodianship of country. My name's Simon Jackman. I'm the CEO of the United States Study Centre. Welcome to tonight's event featuring um, our own uh, James Brown, who's Director of Research at the Centre, and, and Don Watson. Um, the United States Study Centre, our mission is to analyse the United States, but in a way so as to provide insight for Australia. And what that typically means for us is analysis of two major domains, US domestic politics, a very interesting topic, particularly this stage of a, a year divisible by four, um, and also uh, Australia's relationship with the United States, in particular um, its uh, defence relationship uh, with the United States. And as it so happens, we have tonight uh, authors of two quarterly essays whose writings, uh, in respect of back-to-back quarterly essays, I should add, uh, deal with both of these topics, uh, so central to the Centre's uh, research and our, and our mission. Uh, James uh, is um, a former Australian Army officer. He served uh, in southern Iraq, uh, served on the Australian Task Force headquarters in Baghdad, managed operations and contingency planning for Australia's Solomon Islands mission, was attached to special forces in Afghanistan and left the Army with the rank of captain. Between 2010 and 2014, James was military fellow at the Lowe Institute for International Policy, researching Australia's defence and strategic policy his first book uh, is uh, Anzac's Long Shadow, The Cost of Our National Obsession, published in 2014. Um, a, a really unique tale, perhaps uh, one that someone like James was uniquely uh, placed to, to bring to the Australian conversation um, about the Anzac uh, myth, uh, the Anzac legacy, and, and the role it plays today, a, a hundred years uh, or so after Anzac. Uh, James's quarterly essay appeared earlier this year, and, and it's on, the, on a topic uh, that I was just talking about earlier. It's titled Firing Line, um, Australia's Path to War, and copies are available outside. Uh, with James tonight is Don Watson, uh, who's perhaps best known for his work in Paul Keating's office, of course, as speechwriter and advisor. Uh, you may not know, though, uh, is that uh, Don has a PhD in history from Monash, and for a time, before he got into the political caper, uh, was an academic uh, himself, uh, an academic historian. Um, this is not Don's first quarterly essay. Um, uh, back in uh, the early 2000s, um, uh, Don wrote uh, a quarterly essay titled Rabbit Syndrome, Australia and America, which won the inaugural Alfred Deakin Prize in the Victorian Premier's Literary Awards. Um, America is a recurrent theme in Don's writing. Uh, it's a great fit for us tonight at the Study Centre. And that's something I hope uh, James will be drawing uh, Don out uh, over the course of their conversation uh, tonight. Um, the book I'm most familiar with uh, is uh, a book I read when I was still living in America, and that's Don's American Journeys, which uh, back in Australia here won a Walkley for Best Nonfiction Book in 2008. Uh, Don's quarterly essay is, is, is very firmly and squarely uh, in, our, in our frame as well. It's titled Enemy Within, the, the military metaphor continues, um, and Enemy Within, American Politics in the Time of Trump. Uh, so, as I said, it, it couldn't be better for us. We've got back-to-back -back quarterly essayists 
uh, one of whom I'm proud to call my uh, director of research, um, and, and they're going to be uh, engaging you all uh, tonight on topics that are quite timely and, as I said, of, of immense importance to us at the centre. Just one reminder, tonight's event is being videotaped, so everything is on the record, uh, including your questions and, and uh, uh, James and Don's answers later on. Um, uh, the way this will work is that James will lead Don in some Q&A uh, for, for a good part of tonight before opening it up uh, to Q&A uh, from the audience, and then they'll proceed swiftly uh, at the close of the event to, to do some signings of their respective quarterly essays uh, outside. Uh, that's perhaps the best place to, to try and catch up with them after the event. Um, at this point, I'll hand over to, to James. Uh, thank you all for coming here. Uh, welcome. Simon, uh, thanks very much. And thanks to all of you for, uh, for coming out tonight. It's great to have such a big crowd. Uh, and I'm sure uh, you'll be a very engaged crowd as well. I like the fact that we're sitting down here in the gloom and you're sitting in the light. So that's exactly the way it should be for a session in which we're going to have a lot of your questions. Um, and it's very appropriate, I think, that we're here in this building. This is a building um, dedicated to precision. Uh, we learnt just before we came in, it's, it's got the most stable room in the world, or the Southern Hemisphere at least. Uh, and so it's very appropriate to be sitting here talking to someone who throughout their career has used words very precisely and being a proponent of precise language picks every word for impact. Uh, a beautiful writer, someone whose work I've read a lot of and, and really uh, admire what he can pull from his head and put on the page for us to enjoy. Um, so please welcome Don Watson. <laughs> Uh, now, this isn't a room that sort of, you know, writers normally gather in, but as you can see, we've asked the scientists in the room on the, on the walls behind us just to do a little bit of a, a representation of the US election for us. I think you've got Donald Trump's wall uh, and Hillary Clinton's home email server there for your, uh, for your inspiration tonight. Um, Don, let me, let me start by, by asking a pretty obvious question, but um, why do you keep going back to the US? What do you like about it? Oh, I know the answer to that, but it's not occurring to me straight away. Um, <laughs> it, it's, there's something indefinable about it. I think it's, it's, I mean, I like New York and all that. That's great. But uh, what I like most is just travelling in it. I, I can never remember the name of the man who sailed around in the Atlantic for months and months pretending to be leading the round-the-world yacht race. What was his name? Anyone remember? Crowhurst, that's right, yes. Yes, well, I always identify with him, that I, I would be happy driving around the United States and occasionally catching trains uh, for the rest of my life. Um, and I think it, uh, what it is is that you pass any road in the United States and you think, if I go down there, it'll be an entirely new story. I mean, I think of the place as, as, as terribly gothic in the sense that everything has a backstory, a deep backstory. And I mean, Hollywood lives off this stuff, and we think that Hollywood invents it, but actually, writers in America um, have a, a vast amount of material to call on at the drop of a hat. So you can sort of drive along and think, will I go, turn left and I'll go to the Ozarks? No, I'll keep going and I'll wait for the next turn, and you end up somewhere else entirely, and, and you wander into strange places, and they look at you very oddly, or they're all over you, and the hospitality of the place is 
fantastic. It's sort of enormous hospitality with the possibility of death at any moment. <laughs> um, you just never know. I have, you know, I turned off one road once in New Mexico just to get petrol as I was going to El Paso, I thought, from Santa Fe. And there was a, I don't know whether you like Amy Lou Harris, but I'm so old, I do. And there was this woman sitting outside. She looked like the record cover with Emmy Lou Harris. She, she didn't have a guitar. She was just staring up into the Magdalena Mountains. So I wandered over and said, hello. And she said, I'm just sitting here looking at those mountains and wondering why I've never ridden my horse in them. And we got talking and she, her husband was a rodeo rider and he was away riding horses. But she sold coffee and cannoli, which she filled freshly for me. It was a very strange moment. And I... He was away for months. And she was terribly friendly. <laughs> and the Rio Grande was just down the road. Anyway, I crossed the Rio Grande half an hour later and thinking, with this aching heart, but thinking, probably he's just out the back with an axe. <laughs> and she lures people in like this. Why would you sit out the front looking like Emmy Lou Harris? <laughs> it's that sort of thing in America. And, and down that... Road, I realised I was on the road that Bob Dylan, I can't remember the name, but Bob Dylan wrote the song about. And it was where, um, what's his name, wrote Ben Hur, Wallace, Lou Wallace. Extraordinary, it's where Billy the Kid escaped from jail and pretending to go to the lavatory and shot his captors. It was where the range wars, I mean, there's all the stuff. It's where Kit Carson rounded up the last of the, the Navajo. It's just a, it's a fabulous place to wander in. Um, but like I say, always with a certain menace lingering in the background. I, um, the first time I heard you speak about America was when you put out your book, American Journeys, in 2008, and you quoted uh, someone who's, whose name I was fumbling to remember earlier, uh, who said that, um, that looking at America is like looking at a beautiful woman with a broken nose. Yeah, you wouldn't get away with that these days, although you just did, as far as we can tell. <laughs> um, yeah, and no, I see my problem with names. It was the man who lived with Simone de Beauvoir in, um, in Chicago for a few years. What the hell was his name? But yes, that's what he said. I mean, if you, if you, loving America is like loving a woman with a broken nose. It's very 1950s. Mm. Um, although probably... It would go down well between the Appalachians and the Rockies in the context of this election. You know. Something that on the East Coast they don't understand um, so well. Yeah, it, it's, it's, there's, it, there's a darkness to it, but it is a place, however, however much it's stuffed up in a whole lot of ways, it, it remains the only revolution that really succeeded. And, you know... A, a terrible mess, you know, a lot of bodies, but it, it did broadly succeed, and it's, people still you know, have hope there. Um, but that really is the question at the moment: is how much hope they have. You know, it's, it's a country built on hope in some ways, but also built on texts, and that's the thing which I think Australians find very hard to understand. It's the, it's the or to remember, is the power of all those texts, the, father, the texts of the founding fathers, the texts of the, of the New England settlers, you know, Winthrop and Williams, and then Jefferson and all the rest, and then 
the Great Awakenings and the, you know, the Thoreaus and Whitmans. And they, they worked them over. And because, you know, and, and the Bible, of course. I mean, they're, I, mean, I think I've read 75% of people in Wisconsin, which I guess we'll come to because that's where I went this time, describe themselves as evangelicals. Not necessarily religious right, but evangelical Christians. Um, no, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to scrape together anything like that number in Australia. And that means, in a way, that they are addicted to text. I mean, they, they, they think about the Bible and what it means. I mean, you, you turn on the radio anywhere and you'll get, you'll get some exegesis of, of Corinthians or something. Um, so there's a sort of you know, there's a strong intellectual element even in you know, the sticks. And somehow that keeps the idea of what America means alive, in a way, which is very uncommon here. We don't have it. You know, we have a kind of constitution which doesn't talk about freedom or any of those sorts of things. I always think that sort of, you know, the, the founding speech of America is, correct me if I'm wrong, it's, it's yeah, Winthrop's, on the, still on the boat, where he, that's when he talks about the city upon a hill. We shall be as a city upon a hill. The first speech made in Circular Quay was made by Arthur Phillip, in which was really about the men not entering the women's quarters. <laughs> um, that was really it. You'll behave. Behave, is all he was saying. Now, Winthrop has this great vision of America, which is still alive today, and good old Arthur Phillip saying, behave yourself or there'll be trouble. And homosexuals will be sent to New Zealand to be eaten by the cannibals there. <laughs> Nothing if not pragmatic. It's a very different notion. And, and the, you know, the, the Federation is founded in high Victorian times. And the language is, when it's not Lawsonian, it tends to be pompous and rather tiresome and derivative. Whereas the American, Americans are propelled in a way by their own eloquence. And they have these speeches to fall back on. So, too much of it, and you can get a bit tiresome. I mean, it can get rather tiresome. The, Lincolnian cadences, but it does keep them moving along. Do you feel the need in writing something like this to spend a lot of time translating for Australians, or do you feel it's it's accessible for them? They understand those differences. Oh, I think that, I don't think Australians have any trouble understanding. It, but I, you know, I think within America, I mean, let alone you know a distant province like our own, um, within America, Americans have trouble understanding each other. And I think what's a dispute now, oddly enough, for all the, you know, a great deal is a dispute, but one of the things that's a dispute is, is, is the question of hope and what the founding... See, if you go to a Tea Party rally, I, found that I went in 2009, it was the first raft of Tea Parties, and I went to a place called Zanesville, Ohio. It's a rust-belt town, a wreck of a town. Down in the southeast, so it's part sort of Appalachian, West Virginian on the one side, and... Um, and you know Presbyterian beaches stow on the other side of the creek, the river. And it was impossible. You know, anyone who went to that rally could not have been persuaded that within two or three years the Tea Party would have control of the U.S. Congress and have the Republican Party by the throat. Unbelievable. There were you know 150 belly acres walking around in the drizzle. Some of them with guns in there, very uncomfortably in there tracksuit pants, it's a very hard thing to do. <laughs> I mean, I went and spoke to one of the, I got to know a policeman who came in, into the one espresso shop in all of Zanesville. 
terrible espresso, but it was better than there. Um, and I said to him, there's characters down there. He said, what do you look like? What do you look like? I'll go and take it off him. He shouldn't have it. shouldn't have it. The gun, that is. But they, were, they, they didn't talk about inequality. They talked about, because I, I tried to say in the essay, that inequality for the Tea Party, at least, is a sort of, is, anti, is unpatriotic. It's a kind of heresy. Because what you're meant to be able to do is flip into you know, getting out of it. Mm. There's always been inequality. It's in them. That's the way it works. But what they object to is what they see as the loss of freedom, which I think is a surrogate for really feeling that they've had America taken from them, that they, in, in its wider perspective. I think these people, mainly the ones who spoke, were just a bit cheesed off about City Hall, you know. Yeah. But they would so they'd go on about, you know, one of the tea parties, it was about taxes and all this, but most of them, I think, were on welfare down there, and they... There was a survey which showed that an awful lot of people on welfare don't know that the cheques are coming from the government. <laughs> There's always a survey in America. <laughs> um, but you got that feeling. You know, they, they were all McCain supporters. I went to a McCain rally there. When he said Obama wants to spread the wealth, he said it ironically, all these people in camo gear who were on welfare all booed him. Mm. All booed for him. You know, we're with him as well. I mean, no, we don't want to spread the wealth. All the kids were on food, you know, they were all on food stamps. The kids were getting free lunches, free breakfast, free everything. There's a, a, a deep disconnect between the way America works in the minds of the people who make the policy and the way it works on the ground. But I, they argued about the, what the documents meant, what the founding fathers meant. And someone got up and sang the Star Spangled Banner. This town had, everywhere I went, the same guy sang the Star Spangled Banner, wherever he was, because no one can sing the Star Spangled Banner. You have to be a professional at it, really. So he was a professional Star Spangled Banner singer. <laughs> and if, if you look on YouTube, you can find lots of other tea parties being recorded, and they're all exactly the same, and they nearly all have a sign saying, honk if you love freedom. So all the speeches are interrupted by honking as someone goes past. <laughs> it's hard to imagine people who wouldn't honk. You know, like, no, I prefer bondage, thank you. <laughs> um, but, but they honked anyway. Um, but anyway, that's, you know... Is, I, is know it, I mean, that hope, you know, the idea that you could be mobile, that there is a meritocracy. Um, you have a couple of interesting stats on inequality in the book, but in the essay, but the one that sort of leaped out the most to me um, was where you compare minimum wage, you know, the salary of a minimum wage worker with CEO pay. And, you know, in one of the surveys you read, the average... Ameri you know, average American thinks that CEOs make 30 times more than the average worker, but it's actually 354 times yeah. more. Yeah. Yeah. So is it, how much hope is left now as opposed to when you were there in 2008, 2009? I think it's, I think it's palpably diminished. I mean, in 2009, there was a big trouble. I mean, this, this city of Zanesville, which had once been a model American mar-and-pop city, 65,000 people, it's now got about 27,000 people. It's a... It's a bit of a wreck. Um, but th there were foreclosures everywhere. There were houses boarded up everywhere. Um, it was a terrible mess. But I mean, I can't imagine that it's got anything but worse. There's no, no way the city's going to recover. Um, but you know, to some extent, that's, you know, they're going to vote for Trump, those people. But I mean, what's the, the mystery, the thing we don't know now 
is who else is going to vote for him, I suppose. But the point I, I want to make about them is that, you know, when, when Hillary Clinton says that she understands these people, whether she's calling them a basket of deplorables, which is the strangest line ever written, a basket of deplorables? And it was written for her. You know, it was in the speech, it was in the text. Um, but, you know, they, they think they understand them and it's because of their poverty and all that. But it's actually more than that. It's because of what they think about the way America is and what they're entitled to and they no longer have. So it's a... In the essay I quote Marilyn Robinson, an unlikely person, I suppose, but she wrote a piece in which she said that if you want to understand... She, she talked about this glacier of fear that's now spreading across the United States, she saw it. And she said, it's such an unchristian thing, fear. You're not meant to be fearful. You know, it's about bravery, Christianity. And, and she, 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 of course, is a deep... Protestant Christian. She's one of the only people left who, for whom John Kelvin is a hero. Um, she is his man. Uh, she is his woman, rather. Um, but she says that if you want to understand what these Americans now feel, think of the Thirty Years' War and a French Catholic going off to murder some Protestants. For, the, for a peasant. For this person... The Protestants are an existential threat. That should they triumph, that it's hell for everybody. So they must be got rid of. And she says it's really not so much difference for these people that they that these elites, so-called elites, are wrecking America. I mean that they're, they're they no longer you know that they don't exist as Americans anymore. Mm. So what they their patriotism comes back to them as xenophobia or racism. Um, what, what is, or they're accused of, you know, accused of misogyny. Well, it might be misogyny in Brooklyn, but out there, it's God's plan. You know, it's the way men and women are situated in the world. It's, it's a culture, it's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a cultural thing, you know. Like I say, it has to be understood anthropologically, in a way. And the, the liberal elites, it seems to me, cannot get over. You read Salon.com, you go completely mad. I'd rather read Donald Trump's website than read Salon. They're so certain of themselves. And they're going to go all the way, you know, to the abyss, <laughs> I believe. Um, and it is, it is a, a deep failure to understand the differences within America. And in some ways, it seems to me, it's always been the same that the place is so divided, it's so fractured, it's always been held together by, by, if you like, velocity, that while it could expand, which of course is you know, in the founding documents, I mean, well, the, the fathers talk about it, you know, we, this extended sphere is the only way that democracy can work, and Tocqueville talks about it. And the frontier. The frontiers, the, the manifest destiny, call it what you like. But you, if they don't have a stake in it, it's not going to work. And it's not just the physical frontiers, it's things like you know, the tech boom in the 90s or whatever. That, and when that's not working for them, then patriotism is what holds it together in a way. An enemy, a common enemy, or whatever. Now it seems to me it's desperately in need of a new frontier and it may not have one. And the, and the patriotism is fracturing through partly through identity politics 
and partly through a media which has become a kind of reality show. Yeah. Um, uh, where it's very hard to find anything to actually grab onto in the media, and that, of course, is what Trump has understood so perfectly. Just get your face there, say what you like, and um, it'll work for you in the end. Um, you don't have to talk about or even know anything about anything. Just, just throw it up there. <laughs> Out of that debate, which I'm sure a lot of you watched, as far as I could see from re real clear politics... Hillary Clinton got a bounce of 0.6 of 1%. I mean, by any ordinary measure, she utterly demolished him. Um, not that she said a great deal of substance herself, but measured in coherence. I mean, he was... <laughs> which is how we usually judge debates. Um, I mean, it wasn't... She didn't really have to do much. She was sort of all over the shop, and he seemed to lose his cool. He looked, he looked beaten at the end. But then I thought she did a really stupid thing. She had Bill get up and move around in the audience. And you think, in every bar across the Midwest and the South and the Southwest, they're saying, there's bloody Clintons, they think they can have the White House back. Mm -hmm. And that was probably more powerful than anything that went on in the debate at all. Hmm. I, um, I watched the debate in a room full of people giggling every time Trump said something stupid. Mm. And uh, and like you, I was trying to sort of channel, you know, someone somewhere in the middle of America, and what would they think if they were coming to this for the first time? And um, you know, I, I I came out of it thinking probably nothing different to the people in the room, but like you, concerned. You know, we shouldn't be at this point. It shouldn't have got to this stage. Yeah. Yes. Well, when you say it's like you know, by any ordinary measure, by any ordinary measure, he shouldn't be there. He shouldn't be the candidate. How did that happen? The fact that he is there means the game is not the same as people think it is. It is now a different game. And he's... You know, there's a, there's a good piece by um, Andrew Bozovich, the um, historian, former soldier, who, you know, who pointed out that there was a very good question asked by um, Lester Holt in the debate about... Um, it went along the lines of Barack Obama was wondering whether first use should still be not the... I mean, in other words, America would not ever use nuclear weapons first. How do they feel about that policy? And as he points out, the debate... Since the, since the debate, all the news has been about whether this woman was too fat or not. It's all been about her. I mean, that's basically been blanketed the news. But if you actually look at the transcripts of the debate, as he points out, you should be horrified. Hmm. First, by what Trump says, he obviously had no idea. He didn't know what it was. And he confused first use with first strike, and he started talking about North Korea, and we had... Changed his entire policy on nuclear weapons, like he was ordering lunch? All, all over, that's right. He said, no, never use them, no, never use them. And then about two minutes later, or half a minute later, he's saying, well, everything's on the table, you know, and, which is a phrase he remembered. You'd soon pick it up around Washington. <laughs> um, even if you didn't want to, or around Canberra. But, um, but, but then when you look at Hillary Clinton's answer, there's nothing there at all either. I mean, it, it's, as he said, you know, she, you would think she was Warren Harding, you know, which Mencken famously sent up as, you know, 
There was both boulder and dash. There was pish and posh, flap and doodle. It was, um, you know, that, that she said nothing. She didn't answer the question. So this, and there's, that's what we should be concerned about, it seems to me, with our ally. We would, as much as any American might like it, we'd like to know whether they, what they do have in mind with their nuclear policy, and they might go on to ask other questions about whether spending a couple more trillion dollars on remaking the, the American military, new warheads, new ballistic missiles, new submarines, new everything. Um, so out of the, the two arguments, the two candidates, you got exactly zero information from the two candidates to be the most powerful person in the world, to have really all our fates in their hands. Nothing. Instead, we got, for three weeks, we've had talk about this woman who was an overweight Miss America contestant. So we're in this strange world where the use of nuclear weapons and Rosie O'Donnell are somehow equivalent. Yeah, exactly. I want to ask you about that. I mean, you've got to... And the role of the media in, in, in sort of, you know, not holding this to account, not creating a, you know, a common reality. I mean, one of the... One of the points in the essay, you say this, you say, the news is part of what over 50 years ago Daniel Borstein, writing about American culture in general, called the thicket of unreality which stands between us and the facts of life. News is making what he called a pseudo-event, or rather a series of them, out of a real one. Elections are news made in the same way. The pundits are not there to judge the quality of thought or action any more than the candidates are there as authentic, spontaneous beings. An election is a horse race and no one cares what horses are thinking. Hmm. Now today, uh, Ross Duthart, who you know, chronicles the Republicans, I think probably the most effectively of anyone at the New York Times, tweeted uh, something, which I'm still trying to work out. He said, our era's signal intellectual development may be atheistic materialism confronting a choice between reality as simulation and the multiverse. I'm still trying to make sense of exactly yeah, what that means. It's but, I mean, th there's a sense that this is sort of a play, right? That we're not in, we're not in the real world. That this is kind of, some people, you know, this is a play going on in front of them that they are not a part of, that they don't have a stake in, that they can't influence. There's a sense amongst elites that this is sort of a parody of what an election looks like. Mm. Um, the media's warping the reality. I mean, how do you sort of map out the limits of what's real and what's not in all of this? Mm. Well, I, I don't think... You know, it's a funny thing because in a way Donald Trump seems to have figured it out better than anybody else, but I have a feeling that he hasn't figured it out at all. He's just doing it. He's just operating on instinct. Yeah, and, you know, whatever Daniel Boston saw as a pseudo-event, you know, he's talking about a kind of uh, sort of reality TV show before they had them. I mean, it was very far-sighted of him, but it, he could never have imagined what it is now before Fox News, for instance, and much else. I think that, um, I mean, in a way, the news, again, it's not a matter of Rupert Murdoch and Roger Ailes coming up with a format for Fox News which has changed everything. It's partly that. The thought that Roger Ailes was not only putting this on the screen, but behind the scenes he was chasing these women around is you know, just too gross for imagination. I mean, and now he's advising Trump. It's incredible. Anyway, there's... Um, Somehow that kind of news fits with an element of the American cosmos. That is, 
that people do and always have in a way lived in America. You know, I always had the feeling there that people, a lot of people, anyway, and Hollywood is a, is a kind of example of it, but you're, you're never far removed from heaven, if you like, or that one day you will just walk through this screen and you'll come out and you'll be on the Dave Letterman show, <laughs> or Oprah, or something, and that it's always a possibility in your life. This is the hope at its most, if you like, most plebeian level, the quotidian level. You know, that, um, and in a way that the, the news now imitates the, the sort of shows that cater to that feeling um, is no great surprise. But if you, it, I, I think what Trump did apprehend in some way is that the news now rolls and it never really stops. So you know, I, I worked for a Prime Minister who had a theory that every now and again when things were really going badly for you, he called it the, great, the dirty great rock in the pond theory. If things were looking really bad for you, he just threw something into the pond. Some big, outrageous thing. And the next morning, everything looked different. All the newspaper headlines were different. The frogs were on different lily pads. Things were upside down. There was a bit of mud around. And, <laughs> and you could start again. You know. Well, Trump does that every hour and a half. <laughs> <laughs> he, he just keeps hurling it in. And... Because the, the, the news no longer has any capacity to sort of stop and analyse. Instead, it has talking heads from every party. They're all utterly predictable. And the news constantly rolling along, seeped along the bottom of the screen. So I was, I was talking about... I watched Hillary give this speech just after the candidates had been confirmed who they were. Clinton gave a speech to... Um, I can't think of the name of them. The Planned Parenthood, real, you know, good stock subject for audience for Hillary Clinton. It was a brilliant, compelling speech, all delivered in her lower register, her Bible study register, where she's brilliant. Um, and, and when you could actually believe she could be the greatest president ever. A sort of unpolitical, just incredibly knowledgeable and coherent. Clinton gave... Uh, uh, Trump gave this speech to the religious right. They're mad people. And um, there were a couple of protesters. We'll never know whether they were real protesters or just an excuse for him to click his tongue and, and you know, make a few smart remarks. But at some point in it, he went off script to talk about... He'd, he'd forgotten that it had been three minutes since he'd mentioned Islam. So he went back to it. He said, it's happening all the time. We've got to stop it. It's happening all the time. Well, about a minute after that, supered on all the screens, I checked, you know, CBS, Fox, CNN, all doing the same thing. There's a shooting in Dallas, possible terrorist incident. Now, it turned out, within a couple of hours, we realised that it was actually a, it was a lover's, lover's tiff. This bloke lost it, probably on ice, stormed into the airport, his girlfriend zoomed off in a old car and refused to obey a command and this guy fired nine shots at him from what looked like point blank and he survived. He was out of hospital in a day or two. That's just a you know, footnote. But, but for two hours, everyone who looked up at the news, wherever they were across the United States, saw that there'd been, as if in confirmation of what Trump says everywhere he goes, that Islam was 
shooting people down everywhere. And it's happening all the time. Well, in fact, I think six, since 9-11, I think 16 people have been, 16 American citizens have been killed, civilians have been killed in incidents involving radical Islam. Um, 310 have been killed by lightning. More than 800 fall out of bed and die every year. <laughs> Lawnmower incidents account for 69 deaths a year. I mean, it's quite bizarre. And on the basis of this, vast you, you, things have been built. How do you square that with, you know, I, I think we all sort of thought, you know, the big unknown in this election is what if there's an ISIS attack? You know, what, is there a, what if there's a terrorist attack? This will play right to Trump. But then 49 people get shot in an incident of terrorism in Orlando, Florida, and, and, and Trump, you know, it doesn't sort of pump up his numbers. It doesn't give him the benefit we all expected. No, that's, that's, that's interesting. I mean, I think when I left in the beginning of June, everyone was saying, you know, the only way he can win is if there's a major terrorist incident. That doesn't seem to be right. In fact, they might actually, might actually favour Clinton in some way that at first seems perverse. I don't think there, I mean, I think there's a generalised fear and I don't think that Trump's going to get there by having a solution to it. And he doesn't have a solution to anything, he just says, I'm going to do it. Um, but I, I think that he's, what he works on is the fear itself. It's like he's reversed FDR's maxim, you know. Fear itself is terrific um, if you're Donald Trump. And... I don't know. He doesn't. All he needs to say is that. I mean, what he does every time, whenever there is a shooting incident, he says it's Islam. I know it is. You don't need. Look, I'll tell you now. It's, it's Islam. You know. And that feeds into you know the radio networks dedicated entirely to um, anti-Islamic propaganda. And it's not just you know saying that there are jihadists at large. It's saying that they've taken over the place, that they've, you know, they've infiltrated every institution. And, and, and the theological argument that, you know, don't believe that Allah is the same as the Christian God, they'll say. You know, it's a different God. Um, so they work the whole spectrum of American cosmology. And if you just keep pumping it out, I think it's, um, it'll keep going. But I don't, of himself, he's never going to get enough votes. I don't think, but, I, but Clinton is what will give him, if he gets there, it'll be because of the anti-Clinton. People driving away from her. Yeah. I, I want to ask you about um, one of the people who was able to throw a few big rocks in the water on the Democrat side, and that's Bernie Sanders, the most sort of unlikely candidate to be produced on the Democrat side in, in some time. I mean... You sort of put your, your finger right on the question when you're trying to understand what his appeal is. You sort of say, you know, what, what absence in their souls does the old codger fill that makes 20-somethings cheer and weep? And, and they cheer and weep, they did. Mm. And, you know, across the country in different rallies for a long period. Um, and you seem to put it down to authenticity, that, you know, he's authentic in, in I guess, a way that Trump is too. Yeah, well, Trump's sort of authentically inauthentic, isn't he? That's, uh, <laughs> uh, um, I, 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 people would love to know how his hair... I know about his hair, but anyway, I'll tell you. There's time later. That's the uh, third drawing on the whiteboard over there. <laughs> it's, um, 
Well, there is something about. I mean, certainly Sanders' authenticity, but it's it's curious, isn't it? You know, that Clinton, uh, an email or a Twitter or some bit of correspondence came to light in the last week or so, in which she says back in January or February that it's people, the, the people who are rooting for Bernie are people, are young people who've, only, you know, grew up post 2008, so it's been recession for them all the way through, which rather contradicts a view that. America is booming at the moment, you know. um, but I think that sort of somehow is a, is, a, is a typically poor reading from that side of politics. The authenticity really matters. It, Hillary could do with some of it um, because she rings untrue to millions of people. Mm. As, soon as, she, as soon as she becomes the politician, as opposed to the moral Methodist, mm. um, Sanders sort of suddenly walked on. You know, Sanders looked to me like a, like a, a an unemployed school teacher had wandered into a set and, <laughs> and thought he might as well talk to them. Um, he just looked thoroughly at him. His face would go red, his hair would get all ruffled. And he, he, he was sure he had a bit of dandruff on his shoulders. He never looked like he was entirely at home. But he sounded utterly authentic and he was, his language was always concrete. And of course he's no novice in politics. He's a very successful, smart politician. Um, and he had a he was making a, a few very good points all the time. I think his appeal was was more than these young people, but I but I think if you want to know why the tears, at one level was that he was there. He did look like the sort of solid citizen, and of course it would have been a first if he'd become president in the same way that Hillary would be a first if she wins. I mean, he would be the first Jewish atheist president. Um, although there may have been secret atheists, um, or deists at least. Um, but there was, there was the question of his authenticity, but there was also the point he was making, which was unless you actually do something about inequality, then the democracy can't continue. It's corroding it out of all um, effectiveness. It's just... It, it, there is, whether you're a Tea Party or you're just a common Joe, the facts of the way Washington now works, uh, the facts of inequality, are appalling. And they are. Uh, they do transgress the spirit of the founding documents to which everyone nominally adheres. So he had, you know, he had a, he had a concrete argument, he had a patriotic argument, he had all those arguments. It's not really a surprise that he succeeded so well, particularly when he was up against someone who is notoriously regarded as inauthentic and self-serving. And when you think about it, this is the strange thing about Sanders, because he called himself a democratic socialist, People thought he must be some kind of Scandinavian, you know. That he, this is that's where they have you know, European, you know, mad over there. It's no good; doesn't work. Um, but in fact, he, he's a he's a, a New Dealer. You know, he, he's straight out of the American progressive movement, um, and he's as American as as they say, apple pie, um, which makes him authentic as well to those people who are willing to listen. And he was a measure of how far the Democrats had gone in the other direction. I mean, he could say, you know, Hillary now is all opposed to trickle-down economics. But Hillary was a trickle-down economics person. And she's, of course, now opposed to the TPP. And, but uh, that's not going to work, mm. you know. 
There's a lot of things which she's now says she's in favour of that she wasn't before and she's opposed to that she wasn't before because of Sanders. But Sanders wasn't importing ideas. He was reviving ideas which only really went out with Reagan. You know, that's, that's when America, it seems to me, lost contact with a tradition which is as old as the country itself. You're, um, you're worried about Clinton, right? I mean, the, the, the smart money's on Clinton. We, we looked at the odds before we came in here. Clinton's at $1.60, Trump's at $3. So the smart play is Clinton will win, but it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a different Clinton to what it would have been if she'd been elected four years ago. Uh, sorry, sorry, eight years ago. Um, she's moved because of Sanders. She's moved because of Trump. Uh, what are you worried about most, her foreign policy or her domestic policy? Well, I think she's a serious hawk. I, I don't know whether... Just watching a couple of tapes of hers and reading a couple of transcripts, I just think... And it seems impossible. She's Secretary of State, for God's sake. Uh, but you just get the feeling that she hasn't really thought really very much outside the norms of American foreign policy, that this is the way we are. I feel, you know, she was pretty snaky over the Syria thing with Obama. She wouldn't have backed off on the threat that Obama made. I think that was a very good move Obama made. But I'm sort of hopeless dove, I suppose. Um, I think Obama had a kind of epiphany on that. In fact, if you want to ask me, I mean, I think the pity is that Obama can't do another term, frankly. Like, he's suddenly, you know, he's got the measure of things all of a sudden. But, God, imagine if someone suggested that. Um, no, I, I, I think she is. I think she's never going to move an inch on anything in the way of American foreign policy. Um, and it remains to be seen whether she will honour the things that the, the, the new radical democratic platform um, says she is to do, you know, commits her to doing. I can't see that she's going to alter the, the way politics in America has been working for the last you know, 25 years, that the Republicans are certainly not going to change their approach to it. They'll have the House. The latest figures make it doubtful that the Democrats will get the Senate, but they might. But they'll only have it for two years, very likely. I mean, the same anti-government principles will apply. Anything that's government is bad from the Republican side. I don't know how a Hillary Clinton as president is going to be able to change it. In a, you know, if you're looking for a transformational president, it's very hard to see Hillary Clinton being that. But, like I say, I mean, it's a strange thing, but my hope is that A, she wins, and B, that she reverts to the moral Methodist. Imagine wanting a Methodist in the, this part of the, this time of history. Um, but really, there's that good Hillary, I think, and I think there's the, there's the Clinton of Wall Street and um, forget about the emails. I mean, that'd be a huge worry if Trump didn't have, you know, a hundred crimes of the same order. Um, but they're certainly not doing any good. But I, I, I think that if America doesn't actually transform itself rather rapidly, if it doesn't do something to seriously confront the sort of political gridlock, the sort of the huge self-enrichment of the political classes, 
and the, you know, the outrageous inequality just for a start, then it's hard to see that the Trump forces were going to go away and the you know, hope you know, in which it's, it lives is going to be sustainable. Let me, um, I mean, you, you spent a large, your whole life, focused on the, you know, the political power of words. Um, is one of the things that worries you here that we, you know, we go through this campaign that uh, is such a part of the American fabric where speeches are made and policies are uttered and you know, ideas are contested, um, millions of words, and at the end of it we basically get to the point where we would have been when we started. Hmm. Two sulky tribes, as I think you described them, and all the words we've had in, in, in the year and a half in between matter for nothing. Yeah. Well, again, I think, I mean, if you were looking for the good words, were Sanders' words. And he, he, he wasn't going back to the founding fathers or anything else. He was just talking the stuff that in front of him. This is what we ought to be doing. This is the mess. We've got to get out of it. And I reckon that was Sanders' strength. He wasn't talking down to anybody. He was just sort of explaining the world in a rational way. And I'll give you an example of... Forget Trump's lunacy. A couple of weeks ago, when the shooting in Tulsa, Oklahoma, of a, um, of a black citizen, Hillary Clinton was on television that morning and she said she combined the two great cliches of American rhetoric. She said, This is, what is it? She, the city upon the hill, and oh God, I can't think of the other one. How, come you, how can you forget a cliche? <laughs> <laughs> Um, it'll come to me in a minute but, but it was just bizarre it had nothing to do with the shooting of a black citizen um, it's a tragic to bring this up and then not be able to think of the quote but um, no one actually ever talks we're the same here now largely we talk around things all the time and we have pat phrases um, and uh, no one is immune. You know, you can be slightly, you know, you can be eccentric, like Abbott, and use slogans, or you can be loquacious, like Turnbull, and you use slogans, and everyone uses slogans. And we do it without anything really to base them on. They they come up with high rhetorical flourish slogans. I get sick of listening to Obama. I don't know about you, but I just find the kind of musical cadence is a little much. I would like him to sort of come down to the, like he did in his earlier speeches, down to the nitty gritty. I wish he'd say going to instead of gonna too. But that's, <laughs> that doesn't matter. Um, no, I mean, uh, the words get sillier and sillier as the election gets closer and closer. They become, they have less and less meat in them and, and the things that really matter are not addressed at all nor really debated. I mean, you go and watch television in the United States for, for two weeks, non-stop. Watch it 20... Just sleep in between. You won't hear anybody actually take hold of a policy and say, is this going to work? What is it actually... What do they mean by this and is it going to work? Rather, they reinvent it. The punditry reinvents it and puts it into the horse race, you know, which is just a bunch of horses, not people thinking. And out of that, we get a choice between these two people. 
So one of them will win. They'll do a speech. Two, one next month, one in January. Mm. What do they need to say to to bring the country back together again or sort of get the velocity heading in some sort of direction, some sort of national project to keep everybody hopeful well, at least or content if not? I'd, I'd welcome a speech which says um, we're going to um, do this and this and this and this and this and this. We'll create this many jobs by doing this. We'll create this many jobs by doing that. We're going to... Um, I wouldn't mind if they said we're going to... Sorry, but we've changed their minds. We're going to prosecute some of those bastards out of 2008. Um, but to send a, make a, an example of a few. They can go down to Guantanamo and keep the numbers up. <laughs> um, well, I just put the Enron guy away for 24 years, so I think... It took him a long while, but, yeah, it's good. But, you know, I've a few, a few sort of symbolic gestures of that kind. No, I'd rather than go... Rather than call up the spirits of American mythology, I would simply be saying, we're going to do this. It has to be done, and we're starting now, and um, uh, we'll do it, not necessarily by getting Blackwater or someone else to do it, we'll do it ourselves. Um, they might even you know, call up, out of the founding documents, they might call up Jimmy Carter's Malay's speech, a few bits of that, and say, let's have a look at this and see whether he wasn't saying something sensible back then. But that, which reminds me, I met this lovely man in Madison, Wisconsin. Uh, uh, he described himself as a centre a center Republican, centre-right on the political spectrum, former newspaper publisher. He never met a nice man. But he said to me, the other day, actually, after reading the essay, I wish he'd said it at the time. Um, but he said, you know, what, what I hope for is, I mean, I remember how terrible it was in the 1970s. The debacle of Vietnam, Watergate, Carter's malaise, Iran and the hostages and so on. And then Reagan came and everything was terrific again. And I thought, well, that's great. But that could mean that people like you will vote for Trump, some of you, because he's offering this sort of vague greatness, you know, door, you know, morning in America, making America great again, same sort of thing. So somebody really, I mean, he won't, I don't think. But sensible people could end up for voting, voting for Trump on that sort of basis, that they feel everything has gone to poo and they're... This is the only way out of it, is to, you know, roll the dice, see what you get. Mm. Which is why I think, you know, that if Trump does get up, the Democrats, the Democratic hierarchy will have a lot on their conscience. Because they've put up the one person that he can beat. Well, on that note, uh, very cheery, cheery note, Don. Thank you very much. Um, <laughs> run, jump off this lovely building. Um, let, me, let me turn over to you for questions. Uh, there's a lot we haven't touched. We haven't touched how you chose where you wanted to go in this book. We, we haven't really um, gone into some of the characters you met. 
you might want to ask more about what happened by the Rio Grande with the man with the axe and the woman with the sort of <laughs> beguiling story. Um, but we've got a couple of microphones running around. I'd ask that you keep your questions really short. Um, make sure they're questions. If you want to introduce yourself, please feel free to. Uh, and let's keep the questions short so we can get through as many as possible in the next half hour or so. First question, uh, the gentleman up there in the white T-shirt. Oh, hi, thanks. I'm a Sydney Uni student. Um, I just had a question for you, Don. You were talking about Bernie Sanders and um, you were sort of uh, setting up the contrast between him and Clinton um, and that he's someone who speaks his mind and who would, sorry, uh, practice uh, politics in a slightly more pure way. And you harked back to this idea that he's an FDR man. Um, but if you look at FDR, he was willing to do the backroom deals. He was willing to do the things which people maybe criticised Clinton for in order to get his um, things through. Do you think? Do you actually really think that if Sanders had been the candidate and had been president, that he could have been as pure as you sort of make out and actually done anything in the states? I don't know. He's a very skillful politician. We know that, although he was working on a small canvas in Vermont. But um, he'd been in politics all his life and was no mug. I, I, I don't think he was so silly as to think that backroom deals and compromises weren't going to be necessary. I think he felt, however, that his best chance of having an effect on the electorate was to speak to the issues all the time and try and break down what the problems were. And uh, actually, uh, an 18-year-old um, young woman said to me, in, in um, apropos of absolutely nothing, I was talking to her father, and she said, um, Bernie Sanders represents us. Hillary Clinton tries to be like us. And I thought, well, that's, that's exactly right. He, he's treating these people as grown-ups and... He, and uh, and as people who will see through the pretense of someone pretending. He, she said, he's like a good grandfather, she's like a bad aunt. <laughs> <laughs> um, and I, I think that's a pretty solid analysis. Um, but, I, no, I, I don't, I mean, we don't know, we, we never will know whether Sanders could have done those things, but I'd be pretty confident he knew what what real politics was going to mean for him. But you know, the thing about those, those interesting liberal progressive mayors who are dotted around uh, the United States is that they you know they they did do um, difficult things, and one of the difficult things they did was to keep developers out of their cities keep them on the fringes. The Santa Monica was an example, Austin's another one, Burlington, Vermont, Madison, Wisconsin. They, they had to take on quite powerful forces. And of course it was said that you know, these were Soviet republics and that the cities would fail. And Well, you won't get a bungalow in Santa Monica for under about five million these days, so it hasn't really depressed everything at all. You can keep developers out. You actually can take on um, City Hall and, or private enterprise and win. 
That's what they've really proved. But what happens to the revolutionary spirit when you're all of a sudden running the largest, most complex, diverse economy in the world and the world's largest military? Well, Ronald Reagan did it. In a manner of speaking. Um, George W. Bush did it, in a manner of speaking. Um, I don't think Bernie is less qualified than those two, just for starters. Or a lot of other American presidents. Um, What were Dwight Eisenhower's qualifications to be president? Um, Good bloke. General who'd never seen battle. Um, Never fired a shot in anger. Quaker from Kansas. He's a good president. Um, And, I mean, that's one of the things that's changed. I mean, Eisenhower, I I mean, I would vote Democrat if I were American, but Eisenhower strikes me as having been a a good American president. In days when the, the idea of reaching across the aisle, of there being some sort of common purpose that Democrats and Republicans could, at a pinch, agree on, has always been necessary for the proper operation of the states and the federation at large. And that's actually been ripped away in the last 20 years. Mm. You know, I went to Wisconsin deliberately to try and find a normal place where this sort of did operate. And it's gone. It's, it's utterly rancorous and divided and appalling. There are these islands of sort of reason at Madison and parts of Milwaukee, if you like, but in between, it's, the governor is the most right-wing Republican in the in the place. He's in the pay of the Koch brothers. Paul Ryan, who, what's their name, Um, Nate Silver figured was the most right-wing vice presidential candidate since the Civil War, is now seen as a sort of reasonable Republican, comes from Wisconsin. It's a a place where all the old hands across the aisle notion and all this notion that that in the end things can be agreed upon is basically gone. And thank Newt Gingrich, thank Ronald Reagan. One of my uh, colleagues, David Smith, has a graph that sort of rolls out um, the steady upwards trajectory of mixed race and mixed religion marriages in the US and the, the downwards trajectory is mixed party marriages. I think it's something like um, 49% of uh, Americans surveyed now say they'd be horrified if their son or daughter brought home someone from the opposite party. <laughs> All right, some more questions. Uh, I've read the... Um, I'm sorry, I'm an academic from the university. I've read the... You don't have to apologise no, for that. <laughs> this is a safe space. Yeah. <laughs> um, the, the choice between the, for the American people is between the unpalatable and the unconscionable. What's going to drive the American vote in this election? Is it an anti-candidate vote or is there something to believe in and vote for and what's going to win? Well, I think, that, I think that's the, the crunch. You know, I think it'll be decided by the anti-candidate vote and the, the strength of it. And as is often the case, how many come out to vote and who they are, and um, I don't think that those things are really knowable at this stage. But it, it's... It, it's in, in, in recent times, it's, sort of, it's, it's formed itself in my mind as sort of hinging on this, on this very likeable, you know, Eisenhower sort of Republican, who nevertheless revealed himself as a Reagan Republican. I hadn't, would never have guessed it. 
which way he goes. Um, he's, he's too good a citizen not to vote. He'll feel a responsibility to vote. Uh, but he can't stand Hillary Clinton. So he might vote for Trump. A lot of, a lot of Republicans, I mean, will vote... They'll vote Republican in the House, you would think. They'll vote Republican. But whether that will just roll over and down, I'll vote for Trump anyway. I mean, you could get a Brexit sort of thing where they, you, know, you vote for it and then the next day think, well, if I'd known they were going to win, I wouldn't have voted for them. <laughs> um, um, I don't know. I, I still think that she... I can't believe that she won't win. <laughs> but she mightn't. Um, but it'll, it's the it's the anti-Clinton sentiment which I think is the really dangerous element in the mix. Yeah. Uh, my name is Marie McKenzie. I'm also from University of Sydney. Um, you said just when you finished speaking that the Democrat leadership has a lot to answer for. Could you speak a little on what the Republican leadership has to answer for by letting Trump get as far as he did? Well, it's pretty simple. I mean, they were, it's, a, it's a disgrace. I mean, but it, it says something about... Well, I don't know what it says, to be honest, but I mean, the fact is that Trump not only won the nomination, he obliterated 16 opponents. Or was it 15? I think they started out with 16. He was one of them. He absolutely demolished them. He got the biggest, if I'm correct if I'm wrong, James, but I think he got the biggest primary vote there has ever been. He didn't just scrape in, he demolished them. And it's, well, it seems to suggest, I mean, if you take the country club Republicans, well, the, the image of Jeb Bush wandering around in the woods of Maine one night, you know, with no one turning up to his meeting in a shanty somewhere, will forever remain. I mean, he just wiped the floor with the old establishment. So that says something about where the old establishment was in, in um, regard to the, where popular sentiment is. And the new ones were Kellow hopeless loons. You know, Marco Rubio as the leader of the free world is not really inspiring. Cole Christie, you know, is tainted. Uh, the Republican Party is, you know, people say now, and they're right, you know, is no longer really a, a bona fide conservative party. It's, a, it's become a, a, a sort of a, a, a just a, a reactionary block, um, both in, um, you know, in, in sentiment and in political practice. It's done nothing but really stop any initiative at every single turn. And I suppose out of that springs this monster. Um, now, my, my point about the Democrats is that knowing the, the menace of Trump, if, was it wise to put up someone who notoriously has an enormously, um, well, a, a very large block of opponents um, who simply can't bear it. I don't think it's entirely justified at all. I can bear it. But I, you don't have to travel very far to find people who can't. 
64% of Americans eligible to vote are registered to vote. So that will surely affect the turnout, at plus whether it's raining or not. The thing I want to ask you is, to me, I'm dismayed at the superficiality of the economic analysis that comes from Australia. It's taken at face value that the unemployment is low and therefore the economy is turning around and so on and so forth. This is despite the fact we've got the lowest interest rate in history. Um, there's been massive QE. John Hussman, uh, Professor Hussman's of Hussman Funds says this is the most overpriced stock market in history by a margin. So when you actually look at the reality of the economics and you combine it with the fact that the average American that Trump is appealing to between the East Coast and the West Coast, their standard of living is falling. 20% increase in jobs has been all in part-time jobs and because of Obamacare, 30, less than 30 hours a week, 20% reduction in full-time jobs. What do you make of this superficial um, Macquarie Street to Wall Street view of the economy when in actual fact it's dire? Well, I guess it's a, it's a, it's a funny thing. You know, like 40 years ago the economy was talked about by economists and no one else and then we all became, as we became part of, of an economy rather than a society, we, you know, we were subjected to all these measures every night, really. I think, it, I think it's a good question because uh, somewhere under, underlying that analysis are all those people who don't feel the economy is doing anything for them and the more they hear that it is doing something for them, the more outraged they become. Not for any particularly coherent or analytical reason. They just think these people don't know what it's like. And that's where I think the Democrats have have more to answer for than anybody because you know if you end up with a slogan that says um, America is already great which is after all you know and, and it's only a reaction to America let's make America great again then you're really asking for a punch in the eye for people for whom you know as you say are not feeling that it's great at all and what's more that they've been by Democrat identity politics, their patriotism has been disqualified in a way. Their, and their place in America has been taken from them. Now, there are, you know, there are extremes in that way. You know, like racists will see what are all those black faces doing on TV when there used to be only white ones. You know, what are those Latino faces doing there? What are those women doing there? There's, there's all that. But there's also the feeling that they don't talk when they talk at all, they don't talk our language and they must be living in a fantasy land if they think America's doing great. Um, they don't, that's not how I feel about it. You know, one of Bernie's standard statistics was the one where 85% of the wealth created since the great financial crisis has gone to, is it 5 or 1% of the population? It hardly matters. But it hasn't gone to anybody else. Now, that's just a statistic, but you can be sure that it's felt. The reality is felt by people. 
And they're not going to vote for those people they think are responsible. Um, I think you know, it may be that this is sort of the end of. It, it may not be the end of. You know, it may not be about American decline or the, the, the dissolution of hope. It may be the end of neoliberalism. That might be all, all we're seeing. But that's just not going to hold any longer. When one of the candidates you know, says trickle-down economics doesn't work, as Clinton said the other day, she's abandoning her own religion, in a way. What we're actually watching with Hillary Clinton is, will she go from her supply-side church over to the, the one on the other side of the street, the demand side? At the moment, she's saying, that's where I'll go, because Bernie's opened the door to me and said, come in. Um, but how long she'll be able to go over there, we don't know. So. I'm going to try to turn this into a question, but first I wanted to make a comment. Um, as an American, having lived there for 61 years um, and observing the political culture and then reading your essay and feeling like you had picked my brain and you completely knew what I had gone through for 61 years, observing America as a culture... Um, I would also add, um, I think it was Nick O'Malley in the Sydney Morning Herald who talked about Trump as not being something new, but part of racism in America since 1964 with Goldwater. You add those elements, you add the global fiscal crisis, and to your point also that both of these candidates are terribly flawed. And you said... One of your last comments was someone asked you something about if this happens or that happens, it could be quite dark. Um, I think it's, that's exactly where it's at. I don't see anything changing, regardless of who wins. And if, if Trump wins, then you really know how completely fucked up it is. <laughs> you know, I wouldn't... I wouldn't argue with that. Um, <laughs> but I, I thought, um, I must say, when you said you'd lived there for 61 years, I thought, here I go, I'm, I'm about to cop it now. <laughs> but, um, I think um, the question there is, how is it that you complete me so much? Yeah. Well, you see, there is always that thing ticking away, though. I mean, I always remember, in, I went to Japan in 1991, and when Japan was just on the edge of the crash, that is, and it still hasn't dragged itself out. And shortly after I came back, I taught there for a few months, and when I came back, George Bush Sr. went to Japan. And if you remember, he vomited at the table. It was a shocking moment. <laughs> and, we, and it was all interpreted as you know, this incredible symbolic sign that America was finished and Japan was going to rule the world. <laughs> of course, what it, five years later, it meant that he was actually vomiting on them. <laughs> because... America hit a boom and Japan is still trying to you know, get itself going again. So it's got to hold out this little possibility that it has this... Because of its, you know, the extraordinary levels of creativity and the, just the sheer massive brilliance in the place and energy, that it, it might find a way. In fact, it probably will find. I don't know what it is. I mean, I don't know what the new, how you find the new frontier... I don't know whether we take Mr. Duterte's recent America can go to hell and the president is the son of a whore. Um, that, might be a, that could be the equivalent of vomiting in 
<laughs> in Japan, does it mean the Philippines is highly symbolic, you know, after all, is it the Philippines pushing back? Or does it mean, well, Mr. Duterte is just Mr. Duterte? <laughs> but um, I have a, a, a Filipino person lives with us and she's very keen on him. It's rather worrying over breakfast, actually. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, I don't know. I, I, I think I, I find it very hard to see what happens if, if uh, the worst thing that can happen, I think, is if Clinton wins or either of them win. But especially if Clinton wins in a 2000-like mm. situation, if it's if it's a, you know a few. A few votes in Florida and it's decided by a judge. Imagine mm-hmm. how you would ever pull that back. Um, and I think if Trump were to win that way, it's almost as bad. No one knows where these Trump people are going to go if mm-hmm. Clinton wins. Do they just go back into their holes? Or can it be solved by, you know, by the way it's normally... You know, we, we think of it can only be solved by more great society initiatives, new deals. Trump starts his media network if he loses. Yeah, well, there is, well, was one theory that it was a long-range plan to actually take over Fox News. But, um, no, I don't, I don't know. All right, we've probably got time for a few more questions. So we've got one up the back there, and then where's the other microphone? We'll take right up the back, we'll... So first on this side. Thank you, Don, for a fascinating discussion. My name is Georgia Carter, um, member of the public. I recently watched a documentary about the um, Republican primaries, and one of the leaders of the anti-Trump um, brigade compared Trump to a cult leader. She said, as a young woman, she belonged to a cult, and she explained the fact that no matter what he says, he doesn't seem to lose any supporters, no matter how outrageous and self-contradictory he is. I just wonder whether you could comment. I'd not thought of that, but it, you know, that seems to be as a reasonable analogy. I, I mean, I, in the essay, I say he's—I don't say that he's a fascist, but I say what he's doing is, is has a sort of fascist playbook, as we would now say, I suppose. That if you if you line up what academics call fascism, um, then he fills most of the bills, you know, short of his own military force. Or it doesn't mean that should he win, America becomes a fascist society. It means that what he's doing is playing on mythology, you know, a sense of betrayal, fear, you know, with Islam instead of Bolsheviks. Um, it all the the hate rallies, all those things are straight out of either European mid twenties or twenties and thirties fascism, or out of you know South American fascism, if you like. Um, but a cult leader is not a bad idea. I, I I was I listened to a man talking about Francis Bacon the other night, and I thought, in art terms, you know, Hillary is sort of the Hudson and River School, and Trump is Francis Bacon. The eyes in different places, everything (laughs) sort of pulled apart. Um, I mean, both the the idea of the cult or the fascist or the Francis Bacon painting, that he he does 
unsettle everything. And somehow, you know, his instinct is, is to say, well, if I just poke this, I'm going to get a reaction and it's going to suit me. And if I just keep poking it, the wounds are going to flow in my way, you know, in my favour. Cult idea is interesting. Yeah, it's interesting to think of a, you know, if Trump is a fascist, as you conclude, or, or derived from fascism, he's a fascist with a plan for paid maternity leave for the first time in the United States. Yes, but then, you know, I mean, Hitler and Mussolini had great social plans. You know, they were national socialists. They, they were not at all averse to, to the state doing certain things, particularly you know, conquering other countries and <laughs> walking all over Abyssinia or something like that. But, it, but it's... Um, I, no, I, don't, I don't think paid maternity leave. It seems very unlikely, but, but I don't think that's at odds with the with the theory, at least. Um, even the hair, you know, <laughs> or the, the blonde women lined up behind him when he's speaking, and all this. And I'm like, he owns them, the, and the uh, the, um, the choreography of the of the Republican convention was. I mean, it was it was fascist. It was amazing. I mean, you know, the helicopter landing, playing the theme from Air Force One, and the the family waiting, their blonde hair blowing in the breeze of the chopper blades, and rushing to embrace. It was unbelievable. Yeah. I mean, no, the most kitsch Hollywood director wouldn't have come up with it. Sir, <laughs> um, at the back there. Um, yeah. Um, it, with the dire economic analysis of the gentleman over here, which I agree with, it's got to be remembered the American dollar's been going up against all the other major currencies, so it's, their sin is going better than everybody else. It's a bit scary. But I just wanted to ask you, uh, there's one probably more dire scenario than the one you just mentioned about uh, Trump just winning and in a Florida-like situation or Hillary Clinton, and I think Simon's actually uh, alluded to this in previous talks, about uh, if both candidates don't get to the 270 college electoral votes and then it goes back to the, the House and somebody like a Paul Ryan gets elected. My question to you is how do you think those people in Wyoming would react to having their vote, however paltry it might be, snatched away from them? Would they be reaching for their shotguns? Will the place burn? Well, we can assume they'll be reaching for their shotguns. because you know, They reach for their shotguns most days. So it'll um, be where they aim them, I guess, if it's a matter of this time. Um, I don't know. And I think I think that's the. I mean, in, in a way, what the the primaries demonstrated was a sort of brutality that lies beneath the surface. You know, that Trump, that Trump knew he could get up and say the most outrageous things and talk about his penis size. I mean, because it went on for about a week. Um, these were. It, this was sort of dada. I mean, it was. And no one knew how to respond to it. But one after the other, he knocked them off. Just obliterated them. Now, so, but in doing that, I mean, it wasn't just happening... You got the feeling that it's not just happening in, the, in those Republican debates, but actually it represents something that's happening in the society at large or in certain parts of it, parts of it where people are going to vote, probably. That there is that level of anger and... Uh, and brutality. We haven't mentioned in this conversation, but it always seems like a fringe issue, 
But I think political correctness is actually a really big issue in this election. That it's now gone into the language so generally that people who wouldn't know where it started now use it all the time and they pick it up everywhere. That they're being told um, how they should think. That the, the, the words they use are wrong. Um, that everything they think about the world is wrong. Um, and I, I, again, I don't think the Democrats have been as alert to this as they ought to be. Um, that they, it's, it's not just you know good old boys versus the rest. It's not just you know rednecks versus someone else. It's it's this sense that there is, and it's been in American politics for a very long while, this is a, a big new outbreak of it, the sense that elites are ruling their country and it's their country. I mean, that's, to be sure, in the founding documents and elites have corrupted it. And that's where the sort of, you know, the fertile territory exists for, if you like, fascist or quasi-fascists like Trump. Um, to say, I'll give it back to you. I'll give you the real America that was yours and I'll take it back. It doesn't matter whether it makes any sense, whether the height of the wall around Mexico, which they're now debating at length, how high will it be? I mean, for God's sake. (laughs) (laughs) And that'll run and run and run. Um, It becomes... Mm, I don't know. I don't know where to go to that. But... I think that's the thing that the one consistent thread that Clinton's up against is the sense of a whole lot of Americans, not just Tea Party Americans, that the real America is vanishing and it's being taken away. It's not just vanishing of itself, it's being taken from people and they hate them for it. It's another assault on their freedom. Well, it's an assault on their identity. It's like, it is like an existential threat. Who am I if I'm not an American? If I say I'm a patriotic American, I can sing the national anthem and I can recite the Declaration of Independence and I'm an heir to Lincoln and, and all this. And you now say I'm some kind of redneck, misogynist, you know, deplorable. And you can take the, you know, and two people think they can have the White House twice. Hmm. Then they, get, they feel... Yeah. What do you, uh, what's, where do I fit in there? You know? Quite apart from the fact that I mightn't have a job or I'm working three jobs. or I'm, mm. I think we've got time for one last question. Uh, I feel like the front of the room has been very quiet. But we'll, we'll take uh, the lady up there whose hand went up very fast. You can be the last short question of the night. Hi, I'm actually an American from Minnesota, so grew up in a very rural area, one of the areas you probably visited. Um, one of the things that I think both the Republican leadership and the Democratic leadership really don't understand is that by painting Republicans as these ignorant, stupid people who don't have rational thought and don't have agency really means that you have at least 30 years of politicians that seem like 
taxation without representation, let's put it in American terms. Um, and I just wanted to get your thoughts on whether that's how you felt about the Midwest um, and whether you think that that has played into the rise of Trump. Yeah, I think it's a, it's a good question. I mean, I was in Wisconsin, which is sort of like a sister state, I suppose, although maybe you wouldn't feel that way if you came from Minnesota. But I mean, they, they, have, they come out of the progressive kind of tradition, both states. Um, what I, I mean, Wisconsin was interesting. I mean, it, it, as a, a Wisconsin Republican said to me, you know, you, you've got to thank Trump for one thing. He got rid of Ted Cruz. Um, <laughs> now, Wisconsin voted for Ted Cruz. And they knocked Trump over there. Which says something about how far to the right and how far towards the evangelical side Wisconsin's gone. And I don't know whether this is really answering your question, but if I, this is a this is a huge change in what, what was one of the progressive well the progressive state in America. I mean, Wisconsin had for a long part of its history was as progressive as any state in the world. You know. Um, we've, that's one of the things that we've forgotten about America. It was a progressive country. Um, it was in many ways, you know, it wasn't just advanced technologically or any other way, it was advanced socially. Now, I, I think that you're right, that Republicans have been painted with... And, but again, you see, I think that's part of the Democrats', the Democrats problem. The Democrats have been so, you know, they have played identity politics. It suits them to play identity politics. And this has come back to bite them in a way because whenever you assert one identity, you insult another by and large once you turn it into a political context. And if you're just sort of presenting yourself as, as the liberal-minded, progressive, multicultural, we don't, we're not worried about anyone coming in sort of American, which is what you want, open, tolerant, all that sort of stuff. This is the future, they're the past. If you keep presenting yourself that way, then you begin to sort of represent everyone else as if they're sort of backwards. Um, and they're not. Um, they, really, they really are not. And that's why I keep thinking, you know, that the Democrats have got... They've given themselves a big problem. And when you trace it all back through the way the democratic history since Bill Clinton, you see a sort of pattern. Besides, you know, who are they? Democrats are meant to be trying to find a line of difference between themselves and the Republican, while symbolically at least charging $225,000 for a 45-minute speech. I don't know how much you're getting tonight, James. <laughs> but, um, we can negotiate. $225,000 is a lot for 45 minutes. Um, and to make $155 million from speeches over 15 years, which is what the Clintons have done, figures don't look good for the party of the people. Um, I wouldn't think. I mean, I, find, I think people are repelled by that. And I think the Republicans, it's not as big an issue as... It's not grand like Trump's failure to present his tax returns. But Hillary's failure to come forward with the content of her speeches to Wall Street in the context of her social policies 
This is quite significant. If we're going to believe her, well then, let's see what she told Wall Street. That seems reasonable. It's not as bad as the tax returns, but they're, they're, they're in a battle and it does leave you thinking, oh, she's in the pay of Wall Street. And we can't trust her. Another point. One more reason we can't. Well, on that note, let, let's finish. And I, uh, in a second, I'm going to ask you to, to thank Don with me. But before I do that, if you haven't had your fill of US politics and you need a little bit more bleakness, desperation and fear in your life, uh, on Monday, um, the US Study Centre is again partnering with Sydney Ideas here at the university uh, to talk about the rise of the populists. I think the Turtail will definitely get a mention in that. Um, and the details of that are available on flyers here. Uh, there is a survey that Sydney Ideas would like you to do if you haven't already and you can win a fabulous prize. And after we finish, um, Don will be out there signing copies of his quarterly essay. My quarterly essay is out there as well. If someone wants to throw me a bone and ask me to sign one of those, I'd be very <laughs> grateful, but I suspect I know where the bulk of the traffic will be going. Um, I just want to share with you uh, one little thing I read today that I think really captured uh, a lot of the stuff we've been talking about tonight and, and sort of you know, the busted dreams that are, that are seemingly at the heart of this election. Um, how many of you remember the Freedom Girls that sang for Donald Trump at his, uh, at his event in Orlando in their sort of star-spangled outfits um, with lines like, you know, apologising for freedom, I can't handle this. Um, so when they went into that venue, they weren't allowed to take their merchandise in. They normally sell CDs. The Trump people didn't want it competing with Trump's merchandise. So they had to leave it all out in the car park. While they were on stage singing about freedom, somebody stole all of their merchandise. <laughs> and when they finished, you know, Trump talked about how fantastic they were. They were this whole sort of sensation for weeks. Uh, they sent their bill for $2,500 to Donald Trump, who didn't pay it. So the Freedom Girls are now suing Donald Trump. <laughs> Which I think tells you everything you need to know. But look, please join me in thanking Don Watson for an expansive and thoughtful speech tonight. Thank you.